podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This episode of Red Inca is about the structure of English cricket, which has become one of the many narratives about how England lost the Ashes. So I got on a cricket analyst who works for a county to talk about his plans to change it. I'm Dan Weston and I work as a strategic analyst and recruitment analyst for Leicestershire, Birmingham Phoenix. Uh, I've just worked for Bangor Tigers in T10 and, and a few other leagues as well. We discuss Silverwood out, Red Bull scheduling, incentives for player development, transfer fees, three divisions, four overseas players and moving list day cricket and the medium fast middle-aged clock. You're here because of an article you've written. Oh, I've gotten the title of it, and I just read it again, too. <laughs> Is it called Structural Changes in English Cricket, or am I misremembering it? Yeah, Structural Changes for English Rebel Cricket. All right, I'll put a link to it anyway so people can find it now that I forgot the name. Basically, what happened was England played very poorly in the Ashes. Mm. I'm not sure that they massively underperformed, all things considered. I think maybe Australia slightly overperformed. These things happen. But... Because of that, obviously, Silverwood out, I think it's a hashtag now. It's great to see football moving into cricket. One of the first things you talk about in that piece, and and it's something that I've talked about a lot, is you don't lose a series like this because of one particular person. The way that I always say is, what particular coach could improve the England batting that is so incredibly poor to make it so that they were going to win this series in the first place? That doesn't mean that Silverwood and Harrison and Giles and Roots and whoever else you want to add to that list hasn't played a part in this. But that seems to be where the main part of the focus was early on. Either Root or Silverwood were the reason that England lost this series. Yeah, so I agree with everything you say about England. I don't think they've underperformed particularly. This was very much in line with my expectation. Previous to the series, I I said that I thought the score would be something nil with something dependent on the weather. And I think it's pretty pretty fair to say Australia maybe slightly overperformed, especially if you guys like Cameron Green, Scott Bowden with the ball probably mm. did better than what people thought they would. And again, yeah, agree that it's not one man. He's got to take a lot of the blame for it. But there's enough structural issues. There's enough poor decision making and strategic errors, I should say, that mean that he shouldn't take all of the blame at all. And this is very much that football mentality that you mentioned before. Mm. So, for example. Yesterday, Rafa Benitez got sacked as manager of Everton, despite the fact that a week prior to that, the board sanctioned him to buy like £30 million worth of players. And he saw off the uh, director of football first. But the director of football should be the guy who's employing Rafa Benitez, if that makes sense. He should be his boss rather than the other way around. And ultimately, again, it's all the blame seems to be going on one person when I think it's a lot bigger than that. You know, in football, you can't change a football team around in half a transfer window. And in England, you can't change a test team in a year or two years. It takes a lot more than that. And sometimes I think also, I mean, I've written about this for three or four years now. And my constant thing is, I think that the expectations for the British public need to be lowered in terms of the Test match cricket. And I don't see it changing, really. It's okay, I think, to have a bad generation of players. It happens, you know, we can't have a golden generation of players full stop, year in, year out, generation after generation. We can't have that. We can't have, you know, the top six that England had with like Cook, Strauss, Peterson, Bell, Trott, etc., we can't have that. We now have maybe Joe Root would get in that top six and that would be about it. And and that happens and that's okay. Sometimes sport's cyclical, but it's whether they're making the most out of those opportunities for those marginal gains is something I'm quite big on and I don't think they're doing it. No, I think you're right. I think it, it's all well and good to say that there's a weaker playing era. Although if that's the case, you do wonder why it's not being seen right across English cricket and is only being seen in Red Bull cricket. But at a certain point, 
I've been writing about this since 2012 that this was coming. Yeah. It was quite obvious. I spent a lot of time in counter cricket. The batting wasn't of that level anymore. The batting in the test team was dropping off as well, and there wasn't anyone coming in to replace them outside of Joe Root. Mm. The other thing that was blamed the most was Red Bull scheduling. Now, I don't think in, your, in this particular piece you looked into it, but it might have been, is it the Red Bull data blog might have looked at the months yeah. and everything for Red Bull cricket. The scheduling is seen as very poor, and we'll come to that a little bit later with one of your ways of slightly fixing that. But it's also massively overstating the problem, isn't it? England isn't producing bad test players now because uh, they play in April and in September more. Well, no, that's exactly it. And didn't that blog work out that it was the average was actually higher in April than it was in other months as well? <laughs> it was which... something like that, wasn't it? Yeah, I forgot the numbers, but yeah. Yeah, and it's like that Zach Crawley's argument where he plays averages 31 because he plays on bad pitches. Well, if he's averaging 31 is playing on bad pitches, then when he goes and plays on good pitches, shouldn't he be better? Mm. Doesn't that logically hold? And also, if he's averaging 31 on good pitches and there's a couple of openers averaging 40 on, on those bad pitches, sorry, I should say, shouldn't they be picked ahead of him as well? Because there's all these arguments about these pit, the pitches and the, the extremities of the season, if you like. But I think a lot of the time it's kind of... I don't mean to talk partially, but I think it's narrative-driven by a lot of traditionalists in the media who want mm -hmm. county cricket, Red Bull cricket, to be the dominant force, to be the primary source of cricket during a cricket season. And they're frustrated, they're irritated that the white ball cricket and the 100 and all that stuff is now taking priority. But I think it's always going to because commercially that's what works for counties, right? And it probably works more for the TV companies as well, I guess. This is the biggest name drop I could probably give on this podcast. But a couple of years ago at Beckenham, West Indies A, we were playing India A and I was talking to Raul Dravid and we were talking about the future of Indian cricket because he was coaching India A at the time. And he said that he thought that over a long period of time, they would completely dominate white ball cricket just because, he, you know, when he worked with these players, that's what they gravitated towards now. They were really talented at it and all this sort of stuff. And he was saying in red ball cricket, he wasn't sure if that would happen. And the main reason was they just weren't getting the experience that they needed to. Mm. So his worry wasn't that there was a, a lack of talent there, but they, they didn't have that. New Zealand cricket was the first cricket nation ever to actually prioritise white ball over red ball as a test playing nation. Obviously, that changed a little bit when they had their reshuffle, when they changed their pitches, which I think is an important thing in general to make your pitches more like test pitches. But at the same time, as Andrew Strauss once said, you have to play the ball that's in front of you no matter what. But at a certain point, yeah, I think New Zealand and India are two teams that certainly have prioritised white ball cricket and focused on white ball cricket at times. They're doing pretty well in test cricket. <laughs> so yeah. that narrative that you're talking about, when people start to blame the white ball game and, and all this sort of stuff, it's like it doesn't quite track that other countries no. have done similar things. In fact, if anything, I would say that Australia's sort of spasmodic performances in white ball cricket is because they don't take it seriously at all and they could be almost as dominant a team as England could be over a long period of time. So we've got white ball, silverwood out, and when the county cricket is played. Let's look at a few other sort of more structural issues within yeah. in the game. The first one that you talk about is incentives for player development. Now, player development is a huge thing for me. You know, I follow mm. a lot of different other sports and the way that they develop players is so different. For instance, I remember Donovan Mitchell, the NBA player. There was an article about him, I think maybe in his second season or towards the end of his rookie season, where they were going through the amount of analysis he would have after every game where it would be an, an analyst like you or me, it would be a coach and a player development expert all in a room with him in the video, showing him the game and just going, see what you did here, tell us why you did this or why you thought you would do this. And then the coach saying this and the analyst pointing out. 
As someone who's worked at the top level of domestic cricket, as I have, and you know, you've been in a lot of those bigger leagues now as well, it's hard to even get coaches to look at the footage at the end of the day's play, right? So there's yeah. a player development, I think, is a huge problem. But what you've looked at is something really specific, which is not the players directly, but the counties and why mm. they would need to develop players and how we could incentivize them to develop better test players. Could you explain that one for us? Yeah, sure. So ultimately, I feel that the county structure where you've got county members, you've got people who demand success of your county team, supporters, members, whatever they are, and the objective of developing players for England are not far off being two mutually exclusive propositions. So if you look at the Middlesex team that won the championship, was it 2017, I think it was? Something around then, yeah. Something around that, yeah. And you could probably say the same about Essex, who are probably the, the dominant force in, in Red Bull cricket over the last few years, is that they've kind of got a core group who you might perceive to be almost good enough to play for England. Or they have players who maybe aren't the players who England will go for. So, for example, Sam Cook, Jamie Porter, they take tons of wickets every summer, but because they're not 90-mile-an-hour merchants, England don't seem to want them. So they get to have them the whole time. Mm. Whereas if you develop a player who's a 90-mile-an-hour merchant, like let's, let's use, I don't know, Ollie Stone, for example. If you develop him or a player like that, you're not going to see him once you've developed him. So what really is the point, apart from kind of that pride of developing a player for England? Mm. So it's not beneficial enough for counties to develop players who can fit the skill sets that are required to play for England. Not when you can go and find a 75-mile-an-hour guy who will take 50 wickets at 20 average at three economy and won't cost you to earth, but it's never going to play for England. So, And he'll win your matches. So there's no incentive for you to pick the raw guy who's going to spray it around, but has the raw tools to be an international player in a few years' time because they're not going to win your matches. And when you do develop them, you're not going to see them anyway. So what's the point? Yeah, no, it's very fair. The other thing you missed was Nottingham. Nottingham under Mick Newell, who went on to be a selector for England. But his whole strategy really was finding a bunch of players who were not quite good enough mm. to play for England. And so therefore that they would be able to keep them all year round. And there's a perennial debate about Victorian cricket versus New South Wales cricket. New South Wales cricket, if you're not seen to be a test player, quite often you're discarded. Uh, Trent Copeland is probably one of the rare sort of players that has managed to build a career. Whereas in Victoria, they're just like, we just want the best players. Mm -hmm. If one of those goes on to be a late developing test player, which to be fair, Victoria's had guys like Dirk Nannis, Scott Boland, I was going can't quite cl claim um, Colin Miller because he was in Tasmania at the time, but they've had older players who've gone on. So the two different styles there are Victoria's trying to win Sheffield Shields and New South Wales trying to produce test players. Yep. That happens in almost all systems in the world. The difference is that if Victoria suddenly changed that plan, no one would care because Victoria is not backed by the fans, right? There's no... It's different structure, right? Yeah. It exists purely for the Australian team. And really, it's a difference of, we think we can get a lot of very good 27, 28, 29-year-olds who are ready to play for Australia, and we'll still have the odd young player coming through. And New South Wales is more like, well, we'll just find the most talent and just keep throwing it in, and you'll get your next Steve Smith and your next Mitchell Stark and your next Pat Cummins. So, so that exists everywhere. The other problem with you've talked about there is that sort of Jamie Porter thing. Because the conditions are so extreme, and I would say now that with New Zealand flattening out their first-class pitches, England domestic pitches are an absolute outlier compared to every other first-class structure in the world, would be my guess. And it means that we have this medium-fast middle-aged glut. Oh, I should do a video called that. That's a good title. I'm going to try and remember that for later, Dan. 
But, you know, you have this sort of glut of these guys who, I mean, you talked about them before, Jamie Porter. I mean, Tim Murta, I commentated with yep. him the other day. Tim Murta signed his contract with Surrey in 1999, and there's every chance he's got one or two more seasons left in him, yeah, yeah. right? And he's unplayable. He'll continue to be unplayable. There is a certain point at which the pitchers are a part of that. And it mm -hmm. also means that, again, if you are trying to incentivize wins, of course you're going to keep hiring Tim Murta and Darren Stevens and all yeah, those. Yeah. And they're great feel-good stories. And some of them would still exist anyway, the way that Trent Copeland does it in Sheffield Shield cricket, the way that um, uh, who's the, the big guy who plays for Durban, whose name I'm now forgetting, um, but the all-rounder who plays for Durban. Again, it's not like there aren't senior players in other first-class leagues who are really helpful. It's that they're being prioritised in county cricket because of the system. Is that fair? There's, compared to Australia, there's more kind of implications for failure, if you like. So, yeah. you know, county culture will lose their job if they, or potentially could lose their job if they produce players for England, but lose a lot of matches or get relegated or don't qualify for the blast or whatever mm. on a consistent basis. That, that will be deemed as failure by a lot of people. Whereas in Australia, you probably do have that kind of preference towards developing players which which makes a massive difference and you know if you can pick a guy who's gonna take you 50 wickets in a season and at the same cost as a, a raw guy who might play for England because your mortgage is on the line if you lose your job then you're gonna do that right so what sort of incentives do you think there are so we have seen this when I was reading your article there's a couple of things that you might not know about that have happened before one is that there was at a point where if you're an English player and you made the IPL, you had to give a percentage of that money back mm. to your county franchise. Does that still exist? I don't think it does. It's, I think it does. I think it does. Yeah. So we have seen that. In, I actually think that the IPL, if they want to develop talent all around the world so that they can make their competition better, should actually be doing that all, like separate to the contracts. Be saying, yeah. okay, uh, thank you very much, Otago, for this player who we're now putting up on 50-foot billboards. Here's a half a million dollars for this particular player so that can you now spend more money and develop another guy? He'll be able to come through and do that again. It'd be quite a nice sort of treadmill, if you like, in terms of like the, the, exactly that. The IPL teams are investing in talent around the world who then can reinvest that money to get better talent for the IPL team. So, you, yeah. You, you see, yeah, it's a nice sort of, sort of cyclical arrangement, maybe. The, the... With England specifically, what you're saying is Ollie Stone, perfect example. Ollie Stone comes through the system. We know, A, England's going to want to rest him a lot because he's a fast bowler, so he's not going to bowl yep. for them as much as possible. And you're saying that for, I can't remember what the numbers are in yours, but is it for one test, is it 200,000? Or was it five tests you paid them 200,000? Yeah, 200, it was just, just hypothetical figures that are plucked out of the sky, yep. basically. But yeah, effectively an amount that would make it worthwhile for counties to prioritise development maybe over short-term results. Yeah. And... and it can't be a small amount. It's got to be something worthwhile that they can then reinvest into player recruitment or their ground or facilities or whatever to make it worth their while because at the moment it's not worth their while. And I think counties in, in England have got this kind of... They don't really know what the point is of counties. Is it to produce players to play for England as like a feeder system? Or is it to be successful counties as their own right? Because, you know, I work for Leicestershire and whenever that team of people have this 18-county argument whether there should be less counties, Leicestershire always obviously one of the names that get bought up for the cull, if you like. And actually, Leicestershire have developed quite a lot of players for England over the last 10 or 20 years. But there's just, you just don't know what the point is, what the objective is for a county. And mm. I, personally, I think that if you have a successful county team, then there's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy to develop players for England a lot of the time. Yeah. Whereas if you're weak, no one's going to pick you. If you're bottom of Division 2, no one's going to pick you for the Red Bull team. 
Yeah, no, no, that makes sense. I mean, on the county system directly, the, the other thing that you talked about was the three divisions. In fact, you kind of talk about four divisions, which is... Yeah. So I was sort of thinking three divisions was great, but bring in yeah. three minor counties at the, at the yeah, bottom level. Yeah. But you took it to another level and had four divisions of six teams, which either way, I think we're both on a very similar wavelength mm -hmm. there. At the moment, England is still kind of picking players based on their overall form. So if someone's killing it in Division 2, there's still a very, very good chance of playing Test Cricket for England, aren't they, realistically? I would say that there's a bias towards picking Division 1 players, but it's yeah. probably not as extreme as soccer, where very, very rarely would England pick a player who's not in the Premier League. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. I think at the moment there's a swing towards that, but that's partly, I think, because there is two divisions. Yeah. And it's still a newer thing. And we still don't see that many players. There needs to be a real power movement to the players. And fans hate this, obviously. But there needs to be a sort of an empowering of the players that allow them to swing between clubs a little bit easier to ask for mm -hmm. trades or transfers or free agency yep. or whatever it needs to be. Because you really just want the best 66 players playing in first division with a bunch of really good squad members around and then the rest of the players all the way going through. That hasn't quite happened, I would say, when you look at the two divisions. Is that fair? Yeah, not not yet. It hasn't happened. It probably should have happened. I think that an effective transfer system, as you say, would definitely facilitate that or, or speed it up, speed up that process. I mean, so for example, we're talking about Leicestershire again. They've lost some players to Nottinghamshire in the past. So like Harry Gurney, Stuart Broader would be kind of some fairly notable recent examples. But what happens if Knotts had to pay 200 grand plus a load of clauses for Stuart Broad to Leicestershire? Then actually it becomes worthwhile again for Leicestershire to produce a Stuart Broad who's yeah. going to play for England, potentially win trophies, be a world-class player. And then they can use that 200 grand plus clauses money to reinvest in their academy or take chances on players who otherwise they wouldn't have been able to afford to take chances on. There's a lot of things that go for it. And I think also if you're a smartly run smaller team, you'd be able to get a nice competitive advantage from that as well to, you know, some from some of the bigger teams who may be a bit more, you know, they don't, they don't make their pound go as far, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think there's a, a lot of interesting sort of facets to that as well, where you could, like at the moment, I'm not sure what the point of Derby is, right? And right. I, I feel horrible saying that because I know people in Derby love their cricket, but they have created so few England players throughout the history of their game. You know, they're just not a successful team consistently, and they haven't been. With the system as it's currently set up, I'm not really sure, unless they get a really good CEO come in or, you know, a great director of cricket and change this, but I know how little money they have there. I don't know why you would specifically go there. Obviously, Mickey Arthur might change things, and, mm. and maybe they're on that thing. But it's not just having a go at Derby. There's lots of teams that are sort of stuck in this sort of mud. And are they helping England cricket? Are they helping themselves? It's a really, really interesting one. That whole, you know, divisions and transfers, we're getting to that in T20 cricket, of course. We're getting to trades in T20 cricket. My guess is that in the next five years of some of the major T20 tournaments, we'll have some form of free agency. I was thinking about this this year. You know, AB De Villiers doesn't get picked up by RCB. Let's say he doesn't retire, right? Yeah. He doesn't get picked up by RCB. And then he's not in control of his career. It's just whoever gets him in the auction. And he may not want to play for that team, right? There is a certain yeah. amount. And, and you actually see this in some of the other smaller leagues, like the CPL. Players are very particular. Oh, I'm not going to go to that team because I don't want to play on that pitch. It won't suit me. Or I don't want to go to that team because my wife wants a holiday on Barbados, right? That's what a senior player should be able to do. They should have that. Can a cricket, again, we're not quite at that level of that, but because we're getting into trades in T20 cricket as a general rule, my guess is that that will probably flow through anyway. But a lot of what you're talking about is 
making it a structural imperative now, not waiting for it to sort of naturally happen. The other thing that you talked about was the under-25s rule. Now, my memory of this is that they tried this in county cricket before, and that was actually how we ended up with Adrian Schenker. For those who don't know, he was a player who <laughs> falsified his own records to get a contract. He went from being older than Alistair Cook to being younger than Alistair Cook, which is quite a feat. Although Alistair Cook is ageless, so I don't know how that really uh, puts up. So I have tried the under-25s before. I don't know if you're aware of this. They, they tried a similar thing in the second eleven cricket, in Sheffield Shield cricket, and almost everyone said that instantly it was a pointless competition from that point forward. So they made it into a semi-age group. I don't think it was under-25s, though. I think that was under-23s. But what made the second eleven cricket so powerful in Australia, and I think New Zealanders have talked about this as well, is that when you played second eleven cricket in those competitions, you were quite often playing against a 33-year-old lawyer who this is his last chance. If he's ever going to play a first-class game, yeah. this is it. And he throws everything at the line. And I've had friends who, who played in those second 11 games and were like, we played them like test matches. When they made them underage tournaments, even if that was underage with a couple of senior players there, it did change what they were. And it became a little bit more about potential and you didn't have to survive them and you didn't have to grind out runs and all those sorts of things. A couple yeah. of nice cover drives might mean that you go. That's my only worry with the under 25 angle. But at a certain point, I could see why you're doing it because you're sick and tired of 33-year-old seam bowlers taking 50 wickets at 20. Yeah. The irony is, is that I'm not sick and tired of that, but England are. <laughs> you love it. I want more of them. <laughs> Look at it like, so for example, Scott Boland's almost 33 and he's just made his yeah. debut for Australia. It's so ironic, really, because he's almost like kind of the player that England are trying not to develop, if that <laughs> makes sense. And if Scott Boland was English, he wouldn't play. Well, I mean, the obvious one with him is Sakib Mahmood, isn't it? Sakib Mahmood's a little bit quicker, but again, seems the ball in both directions, but doesn't swing it massively, isn't massively fast, despite the fact England keep talking about him as a fast bowler. He's not on that level of fastness. And he wasn't even in this squad. Was he? Like, obviously, they, they got a bit obsessed with the tall bowlers. I don't think they needed Overton in that squad. But I think that's a, probably a perfect example of Boland and Saki Mahmood are probably that, what would you call them? They're almost like the new kind of seamers who bowl between 85 and 90 miles an hour or 80 and 90 miles an hour. So they're not scary fast bowlers, but they're very accurate and they can move the ball both ways. Yeah. And they don't look that sexy, but well, as Boland has proven, it can be very, very effective. It's the job done. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In the English system, Bolin wouldn't be even considered for the national team, I don't think. I don't think that's pretty fair to say. You look mm. at the average age of debutants and, and the, the upper ceiling of age of debutants, and there's absolutely no logical way that he would have gone on an Ashes tour for England. And yet Australia are a better team and they've utilised him really well as well. So, I mean, we, you talk about the players under aged under 25 or 25 and below, Maybe you could do like if you pick six in a county 12 or something like that, mm -hmm. you get a reward or something like that, along those lines at least. And then you've got room for the few senior players to keep the standard up. You've got room for a couple of overseas guys who can keep the standard up. And that would be one way, I think, of developing players. I mean, Leicestershire now, I think we've got, on average, we're usually the second or third youngest team week on week in Red Bull cricket. Sussex are, are quite a bit younger than us on the whole, but we're trying to develop players for the future. But that's... You know, not necessarily with England in mind, that's with Leicestershire's success in mind as well. Mm. You talked then about the overseas players. Your plan has four overseas players per team. Mm. That's probably going to punch a lot of people in the face. Yeah. They're going to think that's quite extreme. However, I've been talking to a lot of first-class players recently in England cricket, not specifically about 
the development, but you know, you end up chatting about these sorts of things. They're all saying now, since the coal packs finished, there's been a notable drop mm-hmm. in the talent level and the comp- competitiveness of cricket. Now, some of them are then blaming that on England's recent batting problems. As I've pointed out to them, the batting problems started when the coal packs were still around. So I'm not sure the coal packs can be directly linked to that. But there is no doubt that that level of talent. So when you talk to Shield cricketers, I remember Damian Wright being one, even David Hussey being another. They said that towards the sort of end of their career, they felt that counter cricket was as strong as Shield cricket. Mm. And one of the reasons was that there was a bunch of South African players coming in. There was overseas players. The way that they kind of felt that it lessened itself was when you played Shield cricket, it was like playing a test match because you played so rarely. And counter cricket was a bit more like club cricket because you played all the time. So people sort of naturally came back. Which is another interesting thing in general about county cricket. It is the most professional first-class setup in many different ways, and yet it brings its own problems by the sheer number of games that you actually play in. But your suggestion of having the four overseas players is really almost a way of getting the cold packs back in and just strengthening the quality of the cricket again, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. So if you look at it this season, the season that's just gone, I should say, there's 18 counties, and they can, they can pick, obviously, 11 players in each, each team. That's 198 players. I reckon... One and a half max, on average, were overseas players per match because not many people used like the two overseas quota for that. So you're looking at maybe like 27 out of the 198 are overseas, 170 odd domestic. Mm. Whereas if you have four overseas, then you've got a seven times 18, which is off the top of my head 126, I think. So sure, <laughs> you're looking at about 45 fewer domestic players. So you're looking at automatically a higher standard because you've got a more concentrated base of talent rather than the dilution that you have from having the next 45 best, if you like, in that setup. But we're not really talking about fewer players because both of us are saying there should be minor county teams. Well, yeah, exactly. And then you throw that into the mix as well. And those next best 45 can go and play in Division 4 for the minor counties teams, for example. So that's why I don't think it's as big a deal. And what you're doing is you're really going back to when England cricket was best, I would say that the county system probably was the best first class system. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, if you go back to almost until Australian cricket exploded in Sheffield Shield cricket. So when they got the six teams, because people talk about the six teams all the time. There were three teams for a very long time. Then there was four teams. Then there was five teams. Then there was six. Tasmania didn't come into the 80s, right? So mm-hmm. the six-team thing actually took a long time to happen, which meant that Australia was missing out on plenty of players and the competition wasn't that strong. I don't think it's any surprise that Australia improves as a test nation as Western Australia and Tasmania come in because it gives you more options. And you know, Ricky Ponting and Dennis Lilly may not have made it, under the previous system unless they'd moved states. And that's Mm. what teams didn't do, right? So on a very basic level, that's the point when Australia get very good at cricket. West Indies get very good at cricket when Kerry Packer comes in and he starts paying them a lot of money to be more professional. He then gets them a personal trainer. They then play as professionals in Lancashire leagues and in county cricket again. So they build this sort of faux, really strong competition where they're playing at home and away for their money and everything. That's when those two teams get good is by setting up a very good... It's not about the talent at that point. It's about the development of the talent and what you're doing. Counter cricket was always the best competition probably until the 1980s in first-class cricket, or at least until probably the 1960s. It's from that point forward where England cricket has probably struggled a lot more as other teams have started to catch up. But even when you look at it, it's not that first-class cricket is brilliant in South Africa. They've got plenty of problems with their first-class structure, the two divisions. Sri Lanka has had plenty of problems with theirs. India has plenty of problems with theirs. Imran Khan's trying to ruin an already ruined system in Pakistan. 
West Indies system, as I said, they almost were good in spite of their system by going out, right? England still has one of the better first-class systems. Mm -hmm. But what it's not currently set up to do is, A, what we've talked about all the way through, which is actually be something that produces test players. And the other thing is that because it doesn't have test-like pitches and because it doesn't have the strength that it once did in the player pool, it's almost like wasting what is one of your better resources. I think you and I would both say in a perfect world, you play like a month of the county season in Dubai and a month of the county season in South Africa, right? Because you'd really <laughs> yeah. want to develop people properly, but that's probably not going to happen. So no. what you have to do is actually make sure it's a strong league that is developing players for the national team. And at the mm. moment, it's not that strong a league and it's not developing players. I mean, exactly. everything we've just said sort of backs that up, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's got to be that finishing school, if you like, for Test cricket. And I don't think it is, but I don't think that that's because it, the county cricket's played in April, for example. I think yeah. that there's a lot more to it than that. The whole finishing school that we talk about with county cricket, mm. it's not a finishing school for England cricketers. It's a finishing school for overseas players because they've grown... Everybody. Yeah, because they're brought up in other conditions and going to England tightens your technique a little bit as a seam bowler, as a batter, even as a spinner, because you're now having to bowl on unresponsive pitches, right? So yeah. all those different things. If you're an England player and you've only ever played in England, it's not a finishing school. It's your beginning school. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, that's right? the point, yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I think when we yeah. call it a finishing school, it is definitely a finishing school for West Indians, South Africans, Zimbabweans, New Zealanders, Indians, Pakistanis. But it's not for England players. But sorry, continue. It could be, I think, if it yeah. was a six-team Div 1 with maybe four overseas and seven domestic players. So you've got like the 42, the best domestic players in Div 1, then it would be a really high standard. And that could be a finishing school to some degree. It's interesting that you mentioned about the expansion of the shield compared to county cricket, because I think that Australia derive a lot more value from going from five to six teams in terms of having an increase in player pool, which you mentioned produce several world-class players. Whereas England going from like 17 to 18 teams probably doesn't have quite the impact. No. So the 45 players who, if there was more overseas, wouldn't get regular game time in a division, three-division structure with the existing teams. But those 45 players are never going to play for England anyway because they're not good enough. Yep. So you're not losing anything by doing it. The only negative of that is that maybe you're improving other countries' players as well. That's the only negative. But you also dramatically improve your own standard of county cricket. Yeah, I think one of the better things of England cricket, and it's partly just geographical, it's actually really hard for India and Australia and South Africa to get to all their best players. Mm. They're so spread out. You, you see yeah. this. St. Lucia's a perfect example of this. St. Lucia's had three international players, I think. Gary Matherin, Darren Sammy, and Johnson Charles. Mm -hmm. Cricket isn't really pushed in St. Lucia because they've only produced those three players. And until those three players, they hadn't had anyone. And because it's another country, it gets separated, right? And it's like, well, that's not a cricket. Barbados and Trinidad look at St. Lucia like they're not a cricket country, right? right. So yeah. a player would have to be exceptional to come through that system mm -hmm. and do that. You get the same thing with India. There's, you know, all of, um, is it northeastern India? I think they produce like one first-class cricketer. And there's probably 100 million people that live in that area, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. to think that there's only one first-class cricketer, I think there's one particular state up to you. It's probably not 100 million people, but it's at least 20 or 30 million people. Same with Australia. How many cricketers has Australia lost because everything is city-based? It's really hard. Like if you're a regional cricketer, you have to move to Melbourne and that means you have to be really good at 16, 17, 18, 19. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or you need to take a big punt on yourself, right? There's all these different problems. England doesn't 
quite have that because there is a professional structure and you can get paid to play club cricket. There's the minor counties set up. The counties themselves have a bigger pool of players. There's more counties. It really is about a few specific tweaks. When you talk about making the, the first division a finishing school, the way to do that is to make all the first division pitches test pitches, right? And literally say, we don't need to train you guys on green seamers anymore because you grew up on green seamers. What we now yep. need to do is we want pitches that rag, we want pitches that bounce, if that's physically possible in England. The other thing of all this is that there are still things that you and I, I think, both believe that could help when it comes to the schedule and all this just around the margins. And one of those is you talk about moving List A cricket to April, yeah. and then you yeah. talk about having like a representative Red Bull tournament mm. for players who don't play Blast or 100. Yeah. So I don't think we lose anything by having the 50-over comp in April. One, everyone gets to play it, which is not the case at the moment because when it clashes with 100, the players who are contracted yeah. by 100 teams don't get to play the 50-over comp. And then we kind of negate that argument that county cricket is played in April, which I don't think is a particularly good argument, but it does kind of placate a lot of people at the same time. Mm. And then, like I say, you have that best of the best, like a regional structure for the guys who don't play white ball cricket to a particularly high standard, guys who aren't contracted to 100 teams. And there's quite a few of them in, actually in the Red Bull group at the moment. So, for example, you know, a broader Anderson potentially might even play in that to some mm. degree, or a Jack Leach or something like that. You know, there's a lot of players who, in and around the England setup, who would definitely fall into that bracket. And there's also some players on the fringes, maybe they've played a bit of Lions or whatever, who would also fall into that bracket as well. And again, you have big incentives for that. So to make ensure it's taken seriously, you give a ton of money to the team who wins, for example. And, you know, money can incentivize counties to develop players. It can incentivize players to want to maximize their output and take things seriously as well. And, yeah, for me, I think that's kind of a little tweak that we could maybe do with the system, which might improve things a little bit and create another kind of pretty high standard Red Bull competition, which could be maybe not a finishing school, but getting towards that finishing school kind of thing where you've got the best of the best, if you like, playing that regional four-day comp. Yeah, it's all really interesting. And I think it's important to note, and I think you, I might mention this in the piece as well, that someone asked me recently, let's say England does a bunch of things to fix their batting. You know, when do you think their batting is fixed at test level? And I was like, it could be five or six years, mm. right? This is not an instant thing. New Zealand had Ross Taylor... Brendan McCullum to a certain extent, especially when he became a specialist batter, and Kane Williamson. But really, they become a good team when the other more averagely talented players, which took years for them to develop, became a strong top six or top seven in some cases for them. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen overnight. Like Even if they were to take up all of the things here, one of the other big problems is certainly the mindset of English cricket, which is, let's say everything you've come up with here works right? But it takes four years to work and they've lost two more ashes in that time. Yeah, They'll just rip it up anyway. Yeah, they would. I think you're right. This stuff takes time, right? This is not, like I say, it's not a quick fix. It's, like you say, six, seven years potentially, maybe even ten. And it's, it's so interesting because I agree, I think it could get worse before it gets better for England in Red Bull cricket. And it's funny because I was speaking to a coach the other day and sort of, you know, hypothetically I said to him, so, you know, if Silverwood got sacked and, and England offered you the job, would you do it? And he said no. And I said, well, why wouldn't you do it? And he said, because the right time to take the job isn't now. It's in like two or three years' time when it's got worse and then you're starting from an even lower ebb, if you like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 
I think the ideal coach now, I know Gary Kirsten seems to be going on a PR tour for a job that at the moment doesn't exist or is not available, I should say. The ideal coach really in that next generation is probably like an, an educator style coach. It's not really an international coach. It's trying to get Pope and Crawley and Hamid and whoever else they think is on that level and picking them up piece by piece and hoping that you can put together something but the actual person that they'll get to coach is probably going to be you know I mean, who have they talked about gary kirsten and ricky ponting which is maybe not exactly that that's the sort of coach you might want if your team is already of a certain level and is already functioning and and, and will put them in a better environment so the whole conversation is sort of a little bit well it's been broken by the ashes the, as usual the ashes has broken the conversation yeah. Uh, yeah. But thanks so much for coming on the podcast, mate. Uh, it was uh, it was a real pleasure to have you on. And uh, as you said, if people, there's absolutely hours of literally you talking to yourself about all this sort of stuff on your yeah. Substack. <laughs> if anyone else wants to get into it, absolutely. Yeah. No, thanks so much for having me, Jared. It's been great to chat. Thanks for listening to Red Inca. There is more information on my guests available in the show notes, including their Twitter profiles, if they have one. This is the important bit, though. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Share it on all the social medias and just get it out there. If you can, act it out in plays on your balcony with your loved ones. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon, so thanks to those who already do. And there is a link to Patreon in the show notes as well. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes everything sound better for your ears, and the theme tune is called The Prisoner by The Red Crickets.